Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to SEAC Stories. This podcast is brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. SEAC is a university-wide multidisciplinary initiative that facilitates collaborations and builds on the expertise of our researchers to address the region's challenges. This podcast tells the stories of our members, exploring and sharing their research in and across the region. Welcome to SEAC Stories. My name is Tashara Dibley from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. I'm very excited to be in conversation today with Dr. Ross Tapsell, a senior lecturer and researcher at the Australian National University's College of Asia and Pacific, and Dr. Aim Simpeng, Brown Fellow and a senior lecturer here at the University of Sydney in the Department of Government and International Relations. AIM has also brought along her five-week-old daughter, Gabby, so we may be hearing a little bit from her as well. Ross is an expert on Southeast Asian media, and AIM, who is also the SEAC Thailand Country Coordinator, focuses on the nexus of digital media and politics in Southeast Asia. Together, they have a formidable amount of knowledge about the role and impact of social media on Southeast Asian politics. So welcome. Thank you, Tashara. Thank you. As it turns out, Ross and AIM have recently co-edited a volume called From Grassroots Activism to Disinformation, Social Media in Southeast Asia, published this year by ICES. We'll hear a little more about the book shortly, but before jumping into that, I'm sure our listeners will be interested in understanding a little about the place of social media in Southeast Asia. There was so much promise when social media was introduced into the region, especially for activists. Aim, can you remind us what Southeast Asia looked like back then and what hopes activists and scholars had for what social media could do for politics in the region? More democracy. That's what everyone was thinking about, you know, even in countries like Vietnam and Cambodia, where activists themselves felt like maybe social media cannot change the regime from you know authoritarian regime to democracy. They were hoping to have more freedom, more ability to connect with one another, and more ability to voice their concerns to governments and society as a whole. But I think it's important to remember that social media actually arrived in Southeast Asia at very different times. So Singapore, being the most economically advanced country, was able to get uh, much of its population online at least a decade before um, some of the countries in the region like Myanmar, Cambodia, Laos could get on cyberspace. So that lag in the arrival of internet and social media in, in particular do have some consequences. But the hope that this new digital tool can bring more progressive change, bring more democracy, and empower the people are share across countries. So you've hinted at the role that context plays, that social media was introduced into the region at different times and in different ways. Ross, could you explain a little about how context matters in terms of how social media is consumed in Southeast Asia and the impact that has on activism and politics? Right. Well, well like the internet, Social media came to Southeast Asia largely through the urban middle class and, you know, Southeast Asia was really front and centre of this growth, this rapid growth of social media. Jakarta was once the capital city of Twitter, the most tweets sent from any other city in the world. You know, Facebook's growth to be the internet in Myanmar or the Philippines has been written about a lot by scholars and analysts. And so when we're talking about consumption patterns, we are talking about this rapid spread and a, and a, real, a real change 
from what we've seen in the West, which is often people going from using a desktop to a laptop to then using the internet on their mobile phones. For Southeast Asia, many Southeast Asians have gone straight to using the internet on their mobile phones. And the first thing that they would get on their mobile phones to use the internet would be Facebook or more recently WhatsApp. So yeah, local context matters in consumption, um, but local context also matters when we think about the way in which this information has, has started to grow and grew predominantly in social media uh, to begin with. The most common saying that we quote in, in this context would be um, a Facebook representative saying the Philippines is patient zero for disinformation. You know, th this, is, this is why social media matters so much and why we need to move away from some of the more Western-centric scholarship on social media. Okay, so clearly things have changed at some point in Southeast Asia. Uh, there was a lot of hope that the arrival of the internet and the rapid uptake of social media would have a positive impact on democracy and political activism. Uh, but at some point, the role of disinformation became more influential. What do you think the key turning points were, AIM, and why did they occur? Elections are the key turning point. Elections in uh, mid-2010 in most of these countries. So about five years or so after social media, you know, that the two platforms, uh, Facebook and Twitter, basically were established. Uh, but it's also the time frame where access to social media platforms really accelerate in the majority of countries in Southeast Asia. So why elections matter so much as a key turning point for social media from becoming a liberation technology to one in which it's weaponized, especially by politicians um, and state agencies to monitor and to try to control information. So elections matter because of three reasons. Number one, political elites were willing to keep cyberspace largely open until they realized they could lose power. I, I mean, the arrival of the internet and social media uh, was originally you know, conceived as something that would enhance economic development that would further globalization, that would be something good for society. But as soon as political office is at stake, and especially in authoritarian regimes where the ruling incumbents could lose power, because of social media, they realize, my goodness, we've been asleep at the wheel this whole time. We have to do something about it. And secondly, what elections do is that they demonstrate to political leaders that there is a new way people participate politically. Political participation online is very different than offline. And not understanding how people communicate and get connected to each other online could matter to electoral outcomes. So I think, you know, elections where the results demonstrate that the incumbent government nearly lost power or almost losing power or have lost significant amount of, of power compared to the previous election, was really a wake-up call for political elites to take social media uh, seriously. And thirdly, um, part of the turning point also coincides with global developments around the world about exactly what role does social media play. So at around mid-2010s as well, um, I know everyone talks about the Trump presidency in 2016, but around that time was when this positive sentiment regarding social media starting to subside uh, around the world. And people are starting to talk about 
the dark side of social media and the dark side of the internet. So these are the three key reasons for why around mid-2010, particularly around major national elections in Southeast Asian country, was considered a turning point for when social media is no longer regarded as a tool for liberation, a tool for democracy, and a tool for progressive change. And instead, it's becoming a tool for disinformation. So a decade then of this new negative force of influence, I suppose. Ross, what's the situation now? And what are some of the key ways in which social media is shaping politics in the region? Yeah, as as AIM said, and AIM's right in saying that what went wrong is that the governments and, and the state got too involved in the digital sphere. Um, So as civil society was winning, and when we think about winning, I guess we think about like the Bursay movement in Malaysia, the initial sort of exuberance in which Jokowi was driven by reformists from 2012 to 2014 and so on, that the sort of the empire struck back, so to speak, Southeast Asian governments struck back. And and unfortunately, the tech platforms often just sat there and did nothing. They made their billions of dollars and they counted Indonesia and the Philippines and Myanmar and the like in their list of their billions of followers. So they let they let Hun Sen buy followers, the Prime Minister of Cambodia, so he's one of the most popular liked leader on social media, you know, behind only Obama or something. Um, they let they let campaigners target voters on identity politics and ranked and and they raked in the the advertising dollars. So particularly election campaigns, as Aim said. And so what is this? What is the shape? How is it shaping politics now? Well, democratic decline in Southeast Asia, a media industry in disarray financially, and a digital public sphere that's no longer seen as a space for reform and change. When we look at how scholars are writing about social media. So the the story is a negative one, but in our book we do try and talk about how it can be fixed. Well, you've introduced the idea of the book, so maybe we should talk a little more about it. What's the main thrust of the book? What was the goal in putting it together? So so the main point of the book was to talk about this tipping point in scholarship of, of where at what point did we say that social media started to be a problem for democracy rather than um, helping Democrats and helping reformists. Uh, what was that tipping point? And so hence the title, from, from Grassroots Activism to Disinformation, we're talking about a shift here. Um, and so really we wanted to try and identify where things went wrong, and that's important because it helps us frame what happens next. Um, hopefully by understanding what went wrong, we can, we can then say, okay, um, how do we fix this? And, and I guess the second point was our scholars are writing very much about their own experiences. They're, they're all local scholars who wrote specific country chapters um, in the book and, and they've, they've lived this. Um, so they've done ethnographic work in these countries. They speak the language, they're, languages, they're engrossed in the, in the country. And so for them it's not just an academic exercise. It's a story of their own research and how that research has shifted and ultimately how um, the role of social media has shifted for the country. And so, yeah, we, we do hope you enjoy that aspect of it, that we are hearing some of the personal stories from some of the writers. You've indicated that part of the idea was to project forward, to think about how things might change into the future. And based on what your contributors to this book have written about, are there any signs that social media can return to becoming a force for good in the region? Well, if you're watching the news and you see the youth are revolting in Thailand, largely through Twitter, 
it gives you hope that yes, the platform is still the space for demanding change, for voicing ah. concerns about society. And I think the last decade or, or so of scholarships about digital politics as it relates to social media kind of, I think, make us lose sight of that. Everyone starts talking about fake news all the time and the government surveilling us and we can't tell truth from false information anymore. And I think we forget that all, all along that role hasn't really changed. So I think what's changed, and I think it's a good thing that's changed, is that we're a lot more aware about the many dimensions of social media and how they impact our lives. You know, partly through education, partly through the issue being talked about constantly uh, in the media, and partly because governments, uh, civil society, even tech firms themselves have stepped up and talk about all of negativity that social media produce much more than before. Tech firms are much more responsive now. I mean, there's still a long way to go, but they are more responsive now than ever been before uh, to reach out to communities, civil society, to ask for feedback, uh, to work on developing the algorithm so that they can reduce the number of bad actors that are online. They can better filter hate speech. They can better detect possibility of offline violence occur. And all of these things require input from society. So the fact that we are much more aware now than ever before and are interested in trying to figure out how can we improve the health and quality of our online lives, I think that's that's really important as a step forward. But also I think the progress we've made in researching this space is, is a positive sign. Studying social media relations is really fascinating because you get scholars and researchers from all across the fields trying to understand relationships online from different perspectives, from computer scientists to psychologists uh, to anthropologists to mathematicians, and everyone's trying to pitch in, looking at a different angle, coming up with new methodologies to try to study this. Companies have been more open in sharing data. It's still difficult to get, but they've been much more open than ever before. So the more we can research it, the more awareness, the more tools we have to help arm civil societies with. But I think our ability to reclaim the online space, especially social media, for progressive change would depend a lot on how much social media companies allow us to take part in how we can better develop tools that will eventually uh, help govern our online lives. For example, taking our feedback from academics, civil society about changing algorithms, changing their user interface uh, so that we can hopefully reduce the potential impacts of things like disinformation on politics, on our daily lives. I feel positive, even though the problems are endless and it seems that the, the issue of disinformation will never go away. But I feel positive about the road ahead because even this year, you know, to see uh, so many uprising and so many uh, movements for progressive change despite the pandemic despite all the problems with social media, as testament that social media tools are still a very viable tool for bringing about good. I think it's really interesting the way you talk about how the process of doing research on this issue itself is part of the change. Ross, I'm interested in your perspective on the role that your book plays in possibly changing the landscape. Why did you decide that now is the time to publish this book? 
So I guess now is an important time to, to discuss this issue of, of disinformation first because democracy is declining in Southeast Asia and there, are, um, there is a real trend of um, a declining freedom of expression in Southeast Asian region and indeed globally, of course. Um, but the second point to make here is that the laws which have been created by Southeast, Southeast Asian governments or are being used by Southeast Asian governments to try to control the digital space have ended up hindering democracy even further. And this is really important because as we grapple for solutions in this uh, digital revolution, um, we need to be able to call out solutions which have not worked um, or solutions which so-called solutions which are problematic. And so I think this book allows us to go back in time as well, it's not just looking at current Stages going back in time and looking at the evolution of Southeast uh, of uh, the evolution of social media in Southeast Asia, and talking about some of the positive things, and also talking about how while governments are increasingly concerned with disinformation, it's often the governments and the state who are the highest producers of disinformation. So, who are you hoping will pick up the book and read it, and what would you like them to get out of it? Anyone's interested in social media and how it impacts the region, because we believe this is the first collection that examines the arrival of social media up until the present in eight major Southeast Asian countries. So I think it's a long time coming that we have a book like this. Uh, it's an accessible, easy read. And because the chapters are divided by countries with the same structure throughout, you can start, you know, beginning to end. Uh, for each country, and it's still an easy read, but you get a lot of the nuance and details of the context that are specific to each country. So if you want to pick and choose a country or you want to read the whole thing, I think there's a lot of similarities and differences across cases that are comparable and are fascinating, but it also gives you a much more well-rounded picture about the role of social media on politics. And in, in some ways, I think it suits people of all ages too, you know, um, younger readers who may have been born digital natives might wonder what it was like before this social media came about and what kind of positive energy the technology had brought for uh, someone who have lived half our lives without the internet, thinking back about the first time, you know, we saw Facebook or even other types of social media, what, what it had felt like. So I think because of these in-depth personal stories written by local experts of each country, I think it gives it a much more rich, nuanced context than just any ordinary book that talks about social media in a given country. So I feel like you can get more intimate details about the lives of the readers that have lived through this whole period when there was no social media and now there's social media. Excellent. Well, if any of our listeners are interested in hearing more from Aim and Ross about the book, I would encourage you to sign up to a webinar that SIAC is hosting on Monday, November 30th at 4 p.m., the links are available on our website and will be widely shared through our social media channels. And if you're interested in reading the book, I can completely back up Aim's comment that it's an easy read. You can follow the links in the show notes wherever you listen to this podcast to purchase the book. Aim and Ross, congratulations on a great volume. Thank you for making the time to talk to us about it here at CX Stories. Thank you, Tisha. Thank you. You've been listening to CX Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our CX Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, 
please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.